Welcome to Classical Education, a podcast for those who believe in rediscovering the art of asking questions, engaging in conversation, and attending to the ideas at the heart of well-ordered teaching and learning. I invite you to join me on a journey in pursuit of the true, the good, and the beautiful as a participant in the great conversation and listen to the many voices coming from the world of classical education. I'd like to take a quick break from this conversation to make our listen to our listeners aware of a new series of introductory webinar style courses. These one hour courses are designed to help parents and teachers become familiar with the liberal arts tradition. If you would like to know more about classical education and experience the joy and the beauty of this tradition, join us for our snapshot series. Currently, our snapshots of the great conversations, as well as snapshots of the literary tradition, are open for registration. Each class is a standalone class and is only one hour. Take one or take them all. For up-to-date course lists, you can visit us at beautifulteaching.coursestorm.com. Again, beautifulteaching.coursestorm.com. And look for our snapshot series to see what might interest you. Thank you for listening. And now let's return to the show. Today, my special guest is Karen Swallow Pryor. You may have heard of her. She's an author of a very good book that I read called On Reading Well. And I just want to welcome Karen to our show today and have her open with telling us a little bit about herself and her work as a teacher and an author. Welcome to the show, Karen. Thank you for having me. It's a delight to talk with you. Um, So my background is that I have a PhD in English. Um, I went to uh, a state university where, you know, there isn't a lot of study of of classical texts. And I actually went at a time, it's it's been a long time now, but um, I went at a time uh, when theory, literary criticism was very, you know, was everything um, and modern and postmodern literature. And it was really kind of a shock to me because I majored in English and I pursued, you know, a graduate degree in English because I just love reading. I love books. And here I was in this program where it was all about the different literary theories and just, I I love, you know, critiquing and analyzing text, but it was so politicized and just sort of ripped the text apart. And I just, I, it didn't seem like anyone there really just loved to read the books. And so I had to kind of hang on to that, um, during that time. And, and as one does find the professors that, you know, just really spoke more to my interest and, um, and my, love for literature. And so I survived and got my PhD and began um, teaching full-time in my first academic position um, at Liberty University, which is an evangelical school, Mm -hmm. Um, probably not known for its classical education. Um, But of course, we would get a lot of students um, who come from Christian schools, classical Christian schools, homeschooling, which is, you know, a lot of homeschoolers are really emphasizing classical education now. So kind of through my students, um, I got introduced to this this approach, uh, love, love those students. And of course now, you know, classical schools are opening everywhere. There's one in, you know, my area. Um, so I know those teachers, some of my students, former students are those teachers. And, uh, and you know, I've been able to speak at some of the, um, conferences for classical Christian um, schools, and 
uh, eventually uh, wrote my book on Reading Well, which is out almost five years now, um, where I learn, you know, in the process of writing this book, more about classical education and philosophy, but also just get to draw on what I said earlier. I just loved from the beginning, great literature. Um, not necessarily, you know, the ancient stuff is it, what we really consider classic is is good, but I think that there's a lot that we can see in even more modern literature that draws on some of those classical principles. And so that was the impetus of my book on reading well. Yeah, I really, really enjoy that book. And I actually just uh, bought the audio book and the, the, the lady who does the reading of the book is great. She did a oh. great job. I never yeah. listened to it, so great to hear. It's, it's actually really good, and I don't buy an audiobook unless the reader is good because I can't. I I have trouble listening, but um, yeah, I feel like from reading on reading well, it's a very beneficial book for our listeners, for any of our uh, audience who hasn't read that book yet. I I highly recommend it. I think it's very valuable for uh, classical educators, um, especially English teachers. I kind of want to go back a little bit on what you said with. Your experience in college was the critical theory. How, how do you um, speak about that and like explain? Because some, not every one of our listeners knows what that means. So explain the difference between the critical theory and this idea of reading well that you're talking about. Yeah, no, that's a great question. And actually, it, my undergraduate college was was wonderful. They really helped develop my love of literature. It was really the, you know going to get a PhD uh, that you know in the PhD program where it was a different approach. So. <laughs> Um, so, you know, literary literary criticism has a long history. We actually, I mean, the first real literary critic was Aristotle, uh, who wrote Poetics, and I am very influenced by Aristotle's poetics and his ethics. And um, and so, so it's literary criticism or in literary theory aren't really new things, but in you know, really in the 20th century, um, there was a whole sort of industry of competing schools of criticism, some emphasizing um, sort of the text itself and just looking at that as a work of art, and some sort of in a counterswing, looking at the context, the author's life, and all of those things. And these are all very interesting things, but then also, um, especially in the latter part of the 20th century, um, because of currents going on in, in philosophy, particularly French philosophy, around language and words. Um, a lot of theories about language and words themselves developed, like deconstruction, post-structuralism, and then a lot of political theories like Marxism and feminism. Now, I think all of these are interesting tools, and some of them do give us, you know, different ways of looking at the literature, and I'm happy to draw from them all. What I was experiencing, and I actually, this is just kind of a, a tide that I think has gone out now. I mean, it's, it's corrected itself, but um, there was just so much emphasis on the theory and on the criticism on, and less on the text itself, and I think that's, you know, as in all things, I mean, this is, you know, my book on reading well is about virtue. Um, and virtue, no matter what we're talking about, is avoiding an excess or a deficiency. So I think a virtuous reader, um, this isn't really the topic of this book, but it's a, it's a great question. A virtuous reader can look at a work of literature through various angles and be enlightened by those, including, you know, the author's life, the historical context, the cultural context, but also let's just 
enjoy the text, enjoy the story. Um, so I think a balanced approach um, is one that's the most enriching when we're reading literature. Yeah, that's really, really good. I, I definitely picked up that message in on reading well. And um, what I want to talk about today as well is your new book, The Evangelical Imagination, that you sent me so graciously, and I'm really enjoying it. Uh, I, As I'm reading through it, and I'm not done with it yet, but I will say that you have intrigued me enough with where I'm at in the book that I want to finish it. <laughs> So, well, that's what an author wants to hear, yes. Yes, yes it is very good. Um, and so there's a lot of interesting ideas in here. And what I realized, I don't know, maybe about 30 or 40 pages into it was, oh, this almost feels like a sequel to On Reading Well. It almost feels like you came across something when you were working on the On Reading Well project, the book, that sort of sparked your, uh, I don't know, sparked you to think, oh, here's an idea that somebody needs to write about that's never been written about. And so, I, I mean, I could be wrong, but that's kind of how I, f I felt going into it was that you were inspired as you were doing your work for the other book to write this book. Can you tell us a little bit of background about it and, and what did inspire you, if, if I'm not right? <laughs> what inspired <laughs> you to write this book? <laughs> well, I think you're partly right. <laughs> so, yeah. So, I mean, on Reading Well is very much about, you know, how to read literature well, and that's a very cognitive, rational, intellectual endeavor that we have to do intentionally and consciously um, think about a work of literature, um, which I love to do, and, and I teach literature, so I, I do a lot of that. But at the same time, there's a way that literature operates that is not cognitive, it's not intellectual, it's not just rational. There's an aesthetic element to it. There's, you know, so, so we can, you know, give a summary of a great novel or a great epic on Wikipedia, they're out there. And you can kind of get the idea of what happens, but that is not the work of literature, right? The work of literature um, is also, also has a form and it, it, it's, you experience something through that form. And, and that's the part that sometimes we can't necessarily put into words. We can analyze it and figure out how it happens. Um, but there is an aesthetic element to all art and really all of life. And I think that's where the imagination comes in, right? Because um, imagination, kind of strictly speaking, is just our ability to make images, okay? Um, it's something that de helps define us as humans. I don't think my dogs, well, they do dream, I guess. I see them, they're like kicking around, but, you know, they don't have an abstract, kind of imagination like we do, and what feeds and forms our imagination. Um, obviously, when we read books and look at art, it does, but those that's not the only thing. We are, our imagination is being shaped by the things that we perceive, our perceptions. Um, and what we, you know, there can be, you know, a hundred things around us at any given moment, but we aren't really perceiving them if we're not paying attention to them. And so my launch, you know, into the, what became the evangelical imagination was um, formed in that way that you describe, but also, and I talk about this a little bit in the, in the um, short introduction, because I was teaching in an evangelical um, context and for, you know, 22 years I taught in that context and got lots of students who came from that background and that culture um, I would, you know, I, because of my specialty is 18th and 19th century British literature, 
I taught a lot of Victorian literature and a lot of my students, when we're reading this Victorian literature, um, which has, you know, reflects the culture obviously and has many wonderful things about it. It also has sort of a seedy dark underside to it um, and some excesses in that period. And so a lot of my students started noticing, especially when the Victorian literature would talk about it's, you know, it's, express its views of women or, you know, the, the private realm versus the public realm, um, the emphasis on, on sexual purity for women, but not so much for men. A lot of these aspects that we read about in Victorian literature, my students said, wait, that sounds like my household and my church and, you know, in the 21st century. And so I said, okay, so let, let's start, let's just sort of unpack um, what ideas that are part of this culture are really and truly biblical and can be supported by a Christian worldview and what ones just kind of came to us from the culture that we inherited and we were told we're Christian, but maybe just really are more Victorian. So that was the other stream that brought about this book. Yeah, very interesting. I, I want, if it's okay, I want to read a section that really struck me and I really liked it. It's on page 15 of the book, and the title of this section is called The Imagination and the Soul Imagery, Social Imagery. You say, uh, and you're kind of reflecting back to what you had just said, but it's not as important to the point I'm going to make. You say, as examined above, imagination as a reflection of God's image in all human beings is suggestive for how we treat the work of our own and others' individual imaginations. Our own individual imaginations create dreams for the future plans for our next vacation, conjectures about the meeting about the meeting our boss asked to have tomorrow, and countless works of poet, po music, poetry, and art. Collectively, the works of our imagination reflect and create cultures. And I, I got the idea that as I kept reading, your, your part of your thesis is this idea about how imagination reflects and creates cultures, which is fascinating. And I love how you unpack all of this. For our listeners, could you talk a little bit about what you mean when you say collectively the work of our imagination reflects and creates cultures? Yes, that 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 is really an important question because the title of my book might be a little bit misleading because of course I'm I am talking about the imagination and imaginative works, but I'm really talking about them in this context that you just you know, read uh, a key line. And and that is uh, what the philosopher um, Charles Taylor calls a social imaginary. Um, so an imaginary, as Taylor defines it, is a pool of images and stories, myths, legends, visions for the good life um, that we have shared and developed together as a culture that we've inherited but often we just, they're just assumed and we don't examine them. We just, they've been handed down to us. You know, for example, like as I talked about earlier, sort of the idea that a woman is supposed to be the angel in the house, or even if we don't use that term or know that poem, uh, which was very popular and famous um, in the Victorian age, um, we still might have inherited that idea and it might be lurking underneath driving us and motivating us and casting visions for what we think the future should be or what life should be without really knowing that it's there. And that's what Charles, that's what the book is really about is, is that collective pool of stories and images and concepts that we've inherited. Some of them, um, 
well, all, you know, most can be very rooted in truth and goodness and be right. Yet, if we don't examine them um, and we or we leave something out or they become distorted or excessive or deficient, then they be they can become harmful. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, I really appreciated uh, the ideas that language and imagination influence each other in order to create culture. Um, I want to talk a little bit about that more and how you think, I mean, Chris, you're starting to go there, but I want to go a little deeper. How you think this, what are the implications for how we teach students and how we relate to one another with this mm. idea? Yeah, that that is such a good question. I think that, um, you know, I, I guess maybe I'll just answer that question by talking about how this worked for me as someone gr- who grew up loving to read and mm-hmm. loving mm-hmm. to learn about literature. And um, and I saw, you know, what, what liter- a lifetime of reading stories, good, bad, classical, new, um, you know, widened my perspective. It helped give me insight into how other people might think or what their perspectives might be. We, we all, you know, we all know this. Um, but what, as it does that, um, it also, and, and maybe we just need to be intentional about this, it also, if we ask questions about why these things were in this world, you know, that we're reading about, or why the characters acted this way, and, and they, they do that without really even thinking about it or articulating it, um, we can see that we do the same thing. Um, and so, you know, a, a really really good example of this from what I would consider classical literature is um, my one of my all-time favorites, Jane Austen's Pride and Prejudice, right? So that famous opening line, it's a truth universally acknowledged that a single man with a fortune must be in want of a wife. I think I got that pretty close. Um, it's, you know, if, if, if we understand the book and we do need to understand it, we understand that that's a satirical line, like not everyone agrees with that line. It is not a truth universally acknowledged, but that line is a perfect example of how a social imaginary works because it is exposing that in this particular culture and society, there are expectations about what a woman needs. There are expectations about what a single man with a fortune should want or need, whether he wants to or not, and how that's all going to play out. And so the only way a line like that could be said, which is really kind of expressing the the view of Mrs. Bennett, um, is, is if Mrs. Bennett has been formed by a social imaginary in which men and women and money operate this way. That's never said. But that's what's underneath the surface. And we're no different from Mrs. Bennett. We have like underlying thoughts, expectations, beliefs, visions for the good life that might be perfectly fine or they could be distorted and, and, and not really the best or not complete anyway. Mm-hmm. Well, I think that what you're saying too really uh, drives home the importance of reading good books. Mm-hmm. Like this is the essence of a classical education and why we read these good books is because it does, it does shape us and form us even inadvertently, like inadvertently yeah. the virtues, the vices, they're going to come through the story organically yes. and they are yeah. absolutely going to shape our character, 
our imagination without direct, you don't even have to do the direct instruction or the didactic teaching of the virtues. You know, what are the virtues, you know? Right. It, the power of story. I think this is what I hear you saying, that the power of story is so strong. The images that it puts in us are so strong that they drive our they drive our culture. They drive our views of life. And so like just having this conversation about this just really drives home the idea of how important books are and why we do need to be careful with what books we are giving to our children to read <laughs> and making sure that we're reading good literature to give them an experience of the best in, in what we have uh, from authors and artists and music. And, and, and Plato said the same thing. He said, we want to give children the best, right? right. And, and I think in, in, within the best, there's going to be ugly things. Right, <laughs> right, right, right. right. It's, yeah, it's not about just the content being all Pollyanna and rosy. Right. It's really about the quality of the way the story is told. Right. Yes. I'm, I mean, we could talk about like even To Kill a Mockingbird and how influential that book was on our culture. Have you, have you did you bring that one up in the book? Because I haven't finished the book yet. Yeah. No, no, I, I didn't. You know, part of what I'm doing in the book, it's not entirely negative, but but it's easier to sort of show uh, what I'm talking about through negative examples. And so To Kill a Mockingbird is like a positive example. Um, the example I do bring up that, that had a similar role at an earlier time was Uncle Tom's Cabin. Um, so Uncle Tom's Cabin was hugely influential in culture. There's a whole like urban legend about, you know, President Lincoln's colleagues saying to Harriet Beecher Stowe, she's the little lady that started this war, that war, which we don't know if that really happened, but it's, it kind of captures the essence of the power of that story. And yet what I talk about in this is, is yes, this, this novel um, did move people's hearts. It, it helped open people's eyes to the horrors and evils of slavery, but it also did so in a way that had a cost of its own because it's kind of a sentimental novel. It's, it's really not a great work of literature. So it's a good example of how a story can move people, but if it's really, um, if it's distorted or slanted in some, in some excessive way, and in this case, in being overly sentimental to the point that many of the um, African-Americans that it depicts in their lives is kind of, uh, is, is, is sentimentalized and they're even some would say dehumanized so it kind of gave with one hand and took away with another because it was based on simply moving the emotions uh, which is easy to do but moving the emotions and the heart and the mind all in the right direction that's what the greatest literature does mm -hmm, mm -hmm. One of the things that I thought was really interesting, and I didn't get it until I got to like the third chapter. And then I was like, oh, I, I see what she's doing. <laughs> I, I love it because I was building up. So you were right, okay. right on time. <laughs> well, so what I saw was this metaphoric, the, the evangelical metaphoric patterns is what I started to notice. I was like, oh, I get it now. Okay. So you're these evangelical patterns of having an awakening, a conversion, a testimony. And I thought this was a really interesting way to organize this book. How did you, how did you come up with that? It was really awesome. Oh, I'm so glad to hear you say that because I had these different, you know, as, as I'm sort of thinking about a book at, like this one, I had certain chapters and ideas in mind. Um, and then ordering them really was, you know, some, some of it seemed pretty logical. I mean, I, I knew what I knew that, a central chapter that I would have would be conversion. 
And what happened when I was, because for, you know, for anyone who doesn't know, uh, the, the famous Bebbington quadrilateral, which is the definition of evangelicalism for 300 centuries, has four, four points, and one of them is conversionism, evangelicals' emphasis on conversion. So I had to do that, of course. And what happened when I was writing the chapter and researching the chapter on conversion is I realized, wait a minute, you know, there's something that comes before conversion and there's something that comes after. And so that just, so I started to see a pattern where I could um, order the chapters almost along the way of an individual person going through a faith journey, like birth, there's an awakening, then conversion, and then then a testimony and then the strive for improvement and, you know, and so on and so forth. Well, I really loved how you pulled in so many literary examples within these metaphors of being an evangelical. Like you start off, chapter one is called Made in His Image. Of course, that's where you would start. And then I love, love the awakening chapter a lot. Oh, it, oh. That it's chapter, very literary. <laughs> it's beautiful. And then you go on through testimony, improvement, you know, you're growing in your faith. And then you end with reformation and rapture, which I'm excited to get to. <laughs> <laughs> but I just, I really think that this idea of this metaphor, this evangelical metaphor to sort of walk through your point about imagination is really, really a very interesting, brilliant approach. And I really appreciate it. Um, what was your favorite chapter to write? Mm, oh, wow. So I, all right. I, so my favorite chapter to write was the one on sentimentality. So, uh, you know, because, because obviously I, I teach literature and teach good literature, um, and I appreciate art and good art. Um, and yet here I am, I'm an evangelical. And so if you know anything about that, you know, that I'm surrounded by, less than, a lot of less than good art and music and fiction mm -hmm. and so forth. Now there's some good stuff out there, but we, we know it's so prevalent that it's a kind of a cliche that, you know, just the show the Christian movies and Christian music, you know, is not that great. And there are a number of reasons, um, and books have been written on this. I only have a chapter. Um, there are a number of reasons why it, in this modern age, because in ages past, of course, Christians produce some of the world's greatest art and music and literature. Mm -hmm. But now we tend not to, at least evangelicals. And so um, so I actually care about this issue a lot and I talk about it a lot and I boil it down to you know one main weakness is our tendency towards sensitivity. Um, you know, and so I give the example of, of Thomas Kincaid and his paintings of light, which are very comforting and sweet, um, but really don't do what good art should do, which is to kind of wrestle and um, reflect the realities of life uh, in, in some way, not just comfort and mollify. You know, I love that you're bringing up this idea that we are surrounded by modern art that isn't so great. And one of the people who reviewed your books, and I'm not um, the artist, and I, I'm not seeing his name. You know Makoto who I'm talking Bujimura, about. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yes. I... I love, I could never say his name. Can you say it again? Makoto Fujimura. Thank you. I've never heard it said. Um, but I've started following him years ago when he did his illustrations for the anniversary edition of the Bible. Mm -hmm. um, and he is a modern living artist who I think does beautiful, mm -hmm. just absolutely breathtaking work. Mm -hmm. And I 
could see the beauty in it just from pictures online. Mm. And I started following his work year. It was really years ago. It was right when he was starting to come out with his, his, when they were announcing this Bible that was about to come out. And I was like, well, now there's a modern artist that I like, but he's using ancient techniques when he's with his modern art. And um, so in the curriculum I've written for some schools I worked for, I had a lesson in there about beauty and viewing art and the difference between beautiful art and this modern, what, I don't know why we're calling it art, but... (laughs) But the idea that what he produces is a good a good model of, I think, modern art. And I ended up uh, at the Bible Museum in D.C. And his works are there. And I didn't know they were going to be there. And I was so excited. I started crying. And his works in person are even more beautiful. So I was very excited that he reviewed your book. <laughs> I was very honored because he is just, he is clearly one of the leading and most excellent Christian artists alive today. And his, his think, work is beautiful. And his, his, you know, and it's not just his work, his life, his ministry, his presence. Um, this, as you said, he is a model for all of us, whether even if we're not artists, um, he is a model for us. Yeah. And I'm going to put a link to his work in our show notes Absolutely. for sure. So um, how do you think this book, and I do think that this book would be helpful for teachers, especially at uh, private Christian, you know, evangelical Christian classical schools, how how do you think that this book would be helpful for for teachers and leaders in those schools? That's a great question because, of course, I'm focusing on evangelicalism, and I know that not all classical Christian educators and students are necessarily in that tradition, but they probably, you know, interact with it a lot. What I really hope for this book. And I think, you know, it's the same thing that I would hope for that would be especially helpful in a a classical Christian school context is, I, you know, my examples are very limited and I'm drawing from, you know, talking about this idea within a very particular audience. But what I'm trying to do is actually model, to use that word again, model what it looks like to examine our underlying assumptions that we've not, we've left unexamined. Um, And every, you know, there is no one social imaginary. There's no one evangelical social imaginary. There are imaginaries, um, all, you know, inherited ideas and concepts and envisions of the good life. And we ought to think about, you know, what stories are driving us? What images are driving us? And you, you know, you you might be part of a community that has different ones than ones than the ones I identify. All I want to do in this book is talk about you know this community that I'm writing about, but even more than that, show how we can all do this. We can all look at the stories, images, and metaphors that are that are shaping us and ask, like, well, is this a true, good, and beautiful story, metaphor, or image, or is it lacking in some way? How how can we how can we recover it or should it be recovered? Sure. Yeah, no, that's good. That's really good. And I want to get to your heart as a teacher in the classroom because I love to talk to teachers in our podcast. I know we have a lot of teachers that are new to classical education. Um, from your love of teaching, you clearly love teaching and I would love to take a class from you. Can you just talk to our teachers about what is the best way to approach literature as Mm -hmm. a teacher? 
Oh, I love this question. I don't think anyone even asked me this out of all the podcasts and interviews I do. But of course, you know, this is this is your heart too and the heart of your listeners. Um, so, and again, so because I have taught so many generations or decades of students who've come from um, secondary schools into the college classroom, um, I get to see the best and the worst of what happens to them in those earlier classrooms. And the one thing that I would say um, that needs that that we all need to do more um, is to and, and I actually I'm probably preaching to the choir here, so pardon me if I don't say anything revolutionary. So maybe I'm just affirming um, you. Is we need to like slow down and really engage with the text. One of the things that I do in my classes, and I and I'm I do it more and more. I'm actually leaving teaching and entering full-time writing at this, at this moment. So, you know, but I'll, I'll still be teaching in a different form. Um, but I, oh, more and more, especially because we're in the digital age, I'm realizing that even my, my students who are English majors who love to read, don't read well. And so I need to model it for them in the classroom. And what that means is together, just opening up the text, and sitting down with a passage or a line. Uh, one of my favorite teaching experiences in the last several years was teaching a women's literature course. And I was teaching Jane Eyre, a book I've read and That's my favorite. And, okay, <laughs> go. <laughs> I am preaching to the choir. We spent probably 20 minutes on the first line. There was no possibility of taking a walk that day. We just sat on that line and talked about what it's saying, what it's drawing from, the journey metaphor, the limits, like what was going on. And we just got so much out of that one line. Now, I know we can't you know, spend the whole school year doing this, but I realized more and more that, that students, even students who want to love to read, are ill-equipped to do it because they're in such a hurry. Um, another time recently, I was, I, I was just... I don't even think it was a sign, but for some reason, I was just like, oh, we need to read this poem by Gerard Manley Hopkins. Um, and it wasn't even one of his most difficult ones, of course, because he invents words and makes them up. Uh, but there were some words he, were, he was using that aren't the most common words, um, and, but, they, but you know, many people would still know them. And so, so I asked my students, I said, so what does this word mean? And, and they all said, I, I don't know. And I would say, yes, you do. Like, like think about you know, the etymology, think about the root word, and they would say, oh, yeah, and then sometimes they would say, no, I don't, I said, well, pull out your phone and look it up, and they would look up the word, and all of a sudden, the light bulbs would go on, like the, a poem really comes alive when you know what the words mean, <laughs> and that sounds so basic, but we skip over, you know, we, we live in a culture in which we just aren't, you know, trained and disciplined to not skip over and to just think about the words. And this goes back to your point earlier about, you know, why reading it is so formative, whether we realize it or not, is because we are creatures of language. So right. words and like we traffic in words all day long. And, you know, we come home and we talk about how our day went, we're using words and we could, you know, two people could have been in the same car you know, having the same experience and they come home and they could tell the story in entirely different ways because they saw different things, they interpreted it differently, but we're doing that through words. And the way we tell the story is the way we're understanding reality and we use words to do that. And so we really, anything we can do to get 
students and ourselves more attentive to what words are saying and how they're doing it. Um, and that requires slowing down and teaching them and modeling it for them. Um, I think they think that the better we are at literature, it's like the faster we go, we just zip along. No, 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 no. The better we are, the more we're just slowing down and saying, wow, look at the power of this word. How is this word operating? And, and what is it doing to us? And what is it teaching us? So, okay. Yeah. <laughs> no, that's that great. That's so good. That's exactly right. And I think, um, I think that what you're doing in slowing down and appreciating it with the students the way you, you describe is you are experiencing the the literature as a work of art. And I think mm. I think that is the right way to approach reading. I mean, C.S. Lewis in his experiment and criticism, that's kind of what the whole book is about, right. is, is approaching literature as a work of art. And I I think that if teachers can begin to wrap their mind about around what that really means, mm -hmm. that it will make for better teachers. Um, and I think you're right, modeling. Uh, I know I was uh, had an interview with Joshua Gibbs a couple of months ago, one of, one of our episodes, we talked about Jane Eyre as well. And he he does, he reads, he says, we just read the books a lot in class. Mm -hmm. And then we stop and talk about it. Okay, what does this mean? And, and, a, and a good teacher isn't going to lecture what it means. A good teacher is going to say, okay, what is this saying, right? right. And I think Mo that's what model I what we should be, what we're doing when we read it, right? Right, and modeling a conversation about this, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, mm -hmm. I think that's great. Uh, I'm so happy uh, <laughs> that you said that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm um, happy you asked. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was a good one. Um, so I'm about to wrap up, and what I like to do with our um, with our guests is to ask them to share either a quote that has had a you know big impact on your life or a book that you had wish you had read sooner and why? Mm, okay, that's a great question. Um, and I think the first thing that comes to my mind is a book that I read just really in the past, I wanna say two or three years ago that I had never read before. And I was stunned with how beautiful it was. So I'll tell you the book and then maybe reflect a little on why I wish I'd read it earlier. It was um, John Steinbeck's East of Eden. And you know, I got turned off of American literature in college because of Moby Dick. That's a whole other story. I'm, oh, I'm that's, reading. I, I, that's, I am actually reading Moby Dick right now for the I first time. Too. I am too. Oh, we were like soulmates. We love Jane Eyre. We're reading Moby Dick for the first time. I know. And it's just, you know, I, I, it was a life. And I really, I actually really am enjoying it. And I have a very good audiobook. I'll send you the. Oh, okay. Okay. You know, the I, good. You know, I'm still, I'm remembering why I did, it's better, of course, better than I thought it was when I didn't mm -hmm. read it in, in college when I was supposed to. Um, but I was just like, well, the, you know, I just, I just turned to British literature at that point. And so, right. so there's a lot of American literature that I haven't read. And um, East of Eden was just stunning and beautiful. And, you know, maybe if I'd read it earlier, you know, I wouldn't have been ready for it or whatever. But I think if I'd read it a little bit earlier, I would, what I, what I really loved about it is not only that it's just a great story that's well told, but I love how it retells the biblical stories. And, you know, the, the, the great, you know, Old Testament um, stories, it just sort of resets them in, in that time and place. And for me, the way it blended, you know, modern literature and America and the Bible is sort of a seamless whole, a seamless vision of the human condition 
Um, I think it would, I think I would have had, I think I would have appreciated American literature more, appreciated, you know, I, you can always appreciate the Bible more. Um, I've just always been more drawn to literature. Um, and I don't know, it was just a stunning and beautiful work that moved me. Maybe I read it at the right time in my life, but it, it, but it is one that I think if I had been introduced to it earlier, um, I would have had broader literary tastes than I do now, which tend, you know, they're fairly broad, but they could be broader. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, thank you, Karen, for this uh, time, your time. And I really hope our listeners will go out and get a copy of either On Reading Well or The Evangelical Imagination or both. <laughs> and and get to know you. I think that your heart shines through these these books, and I I really like I like you. <laughs> oh, thank you. We we had a rough start on this podcast, but we both persevered through the technology issues, and I just had such an enjoyable conversation. I'm so glad that uh, we got past the the gremlins um, and and did it was it was in our microphones, right? Yes. yes. <laughs> All right. Thank you, Karen. Thank you. Thank you for listening. You can get involved in a few ways. There's a Facebook page where we actively discuss the ideas around classical education. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash groups forward slash classical education. And if you want to help offset our production costs, you can support the podcast financially by going to www.classicaleducationpodcast.com forward slash support. As the great artist and educator John Ruskin once said, well, my friends, the final result of the education I want you to give your children will be in a few words this. They will know what it is to see the sky. They will know what it is to breathe it. And they will know best of all what it is to behave under it as in the presence of a father who is in heaven.